So what's the problem with society? I think it begins with us, the finger pointed inward, taking responsibility for the ways that we have rejected God's authority and contributed to the fragmentation of our relationship with God, the fragmenting of human relationships, the fragmenting of our caretaking of the physical earth. But simultaneously, where's the hope? It's in believers taking responsibility those places and spaces that we have been given to steward and to caretake. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ideology. Nick Murray here holding down the fort as Drew is on the road once again. And today, since I'm sitting in a room all by myself talking in to a microphone, I'm going to riff on some of the themes that we have been talking about for the past couple of years in light of just some of the questions that I've been hearing float around recently in my circles, in pastoral settings, as I scan headlines in the news. And there seems to be a common refrain or th- this question around hope or uh, this attempt to localize the problem with society. I think I've uh, heard a lot of it in this season around the midterms and with the advent of social media and just the internet in general over the past 20 years, this ability to create these public forums and and this ability to air our opinions with anonymity and very little recourse and not a ton of space for dialogue. And I know that's ironic as I am talking about this via a podcast where there is no opportunity for dialogue. But I want to present some thoughts today, and feel free to reach out to Drew and I uh, via email, ideologypc at gmail.com. would love to chat about these things as much as we are able to, because there has been a common refrain for several years now. You know, what's What's the problem with society? I mean, really, that's always been the question, and there has always been finger-pointing, but there have been some clear and consistent talking points for the past, and since about 2018, 2019, that depending upon who you talk to, the issues with the Democrats or with the Republicans, or it's white evangelicalism is destroying Christianity. If, if we don't do something, if you don't do something, you're complicit, or it's critical race theory or socialism or social theory in general being the, the, the greatest threat to our society today, to democracy. So go vote, get involved in the school board. Well, actually, it's narcissistic pastors or leaders that are the biggest threat, or it's celebrityism, or it's systemic racism, and so on and so forth. And of course, all of these claims merit some sort of evaluation, and there is legitimacy to almost all or all of these claims, that all of these issues contribute in some way to the challenges that we all face. But I want to look at the Christian narrative today. We talked about the Christian meta-narrative. It was one of our first few episodes. And look back at Genesis 1 through 3, and to see again what the roadmap of the scriptures teaches us about the answers to some of these questions, or at least to get us pointed in the right direction, to use a John Mark Comerism, uh, our mental maps, the the grid lines that have been laid down in our brains when it comes to the big philosophies of life. And we've talked ad nauseum about origin stories and ontology and epistemology and teleology and the nature of of humanity, anthropology and our sexuality and ethics and eschatology. But these are the main thoroughfares, if you will. These are the stories that were told by our families of origin in our culture and through education and through our workplaces and the media 
that we consume, and they form these well-worn paths in our brains through which we evaluate the world around us. They form, to use another metaphor, the lens through which we look. And we've talked before about taking the lens off from time to time and evaluating the lens itself, looking at the lens and not just through the lens. And so by way of refresher, looking at Genesis one through three, and don't mean this to sound like a Bible teaching, but I think it's important when we talk about ideology, the ideas that are shaping the contours of modern society, our tagline, then we need to look at both the Judeo-Christian origin stories, what it means to live a good life, what it means to be human, as well as the secular stories to understand ourselves, to understand the narratives that are being talked about in our culture, to understand the tensions, even when it comes to political wranglings. These things are ancient problems. These are not modern phenomena. There are funny videos out there that are a mashup of just about every election in the modern era, or at least since the advent of television, and just about every election has sound bites of this is the most important election of your lifetime. Everything hinges on the outcome of this election. Everything is hanging in the balance, democracy itself, and all of the catastrophizing and the melodrama that can swirl around politics. Again, these are ancient problems. So to go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis 1, God goes on a creating spree for six days. He creates the heavens and the earth, and he separates light from darkness, and he creates the expanse above and below the, the skies and the waters. He creates the, the dry land and then populates all those spaces with the sun, moon, and stars, and fish, and birds, and the beasts of the field, and finally, mankind. And we come to a seminal passage in Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28, upon which is built a lot of Christian philosophy, or we should just say philosophy in general, what it means to be human. God says, let us make man in our image. And there's that first person plural, which a lot of people have tried to explain away as the royal we, etc. But those turn out to be rather flimsy arguments. The best explanation is Occam's razor here. The most obvious one is that this is an early reference to the Trinity, this first person plural, let us make man in our image. God having existed in perfect fellowship within himself, whatever that means or however we can conceive of a Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, coexisting in himself from eternity past to eternity future in perfect unbroken fellowship. And out of the overflow of that love and that communication and that relationship creates mankind in his image, emotive, rational, communicative, and with the ability to constrain our passions and to channel our creative energies as he does, unique among all of God's creation to have fellowship with him and with one another, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And we are able to have relationship with God uniquely among all of his creation. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. This idea of dominion we'll come back to. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And essentially you see the three relationships that mankind was created to be 
in and among right here in these three verses. And then you can extrapolate this out through the rest of the text, Genesis 1 and 2 and beyond, that there's this relationship with God that mankind was placed within, made in his image, able to communicate, to commune with him in a unique manner. The relationship of mankind among itself, uh, man and woman and then by extension, the societies that would come from them, that we have these horizontal relationships with one another. And then even this relationship with the created order, with the earth, to have dominion over and to subdue. And that is a difficult concept because we've been tainted by sin, and the ideas of having dominion or subduing conjure up images of the 20th century of Hitler and Mao and Pol Pot and Mussolini and Hirohito and Stalin and so many others. This idea of subjugating peoples for personal gain to their detriment, usurping in a way that strips others of their human dignity and their free will. But this isn't the kind of dominion and subduing that God had in mind for Adam and Eve. This is before the fall. And we get some sense of God's notion of what it means to subdue and have dominion over by what he gave Adam and Eve to do in the very next chapter in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The very first task, or one of the very first tasks, aside from naming the animals, which I would argue is a subset of this general idea of gardening, of tending and cultivating, that this is God's idea of subduing and have de- having dominion over is as a gardener has dominion over their garden to bring about beauty and fruitfulness and life, not to usurp for personal gain, but to tend and cultivate with care and tenderness that the garden would flourish and that all would be blessed as a result. And this then, as I understand it, represents the telos of the human existence, that we are relational beings, that a human that is not living in relationship with God, in flourishing relationships with other people, and in some kind of harmonious balance with the created order, with the physical earth, through our vocation, through our avocations, that we are tending the land, so to speak, maybe not physically gardening, but through our families, through our jobs, through our civic involvement. The things that we put our hands to are flourishing as a result because we are caretakers. We are tending the garden that God has placed us within. But now, as then, God has specific boundaries. He determines what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. And he gave to Adam and Eve to eat of all the trees of the garden except the one in the center, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they rejected his authority. They listened to the deceptions of the serpent. Eve took of the fruit of the tree, ate, and gave it to Adam, who was standing right there with her. And then God comes on the scene in Genesis 3, walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which is a beautiful thought that they would have encountered God this sort of way, this intimate way where he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he calls out to them, where are you? And there's this exchange where he asks Adam, what has gone on? Has he eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And Adam, of course, he owns up. He says, it was my fault. I take full responsibility as the head of my household. I sinned. I repent. I ask for forgiveness and I take full responsibility. Right, of course, he doesn't do that. He shifts the blame in two ways. He says, the woman who you gave to me, and he points the finger at his wife, at God himself. And 
God turns to Eve, doesn't rebuke Adam just then, but turns to Eve. What is this thing that you have done? And she takes full responsibility as Adam did. Uh, Of course not. She shifts the blame as well and blames the serpent. So here again, you have the seedbed of a lot of historical philosophy in terms of teleology, the purpose of life, to live in relationship with God, in relationship with one another, in relationship with the earth, to the extent that the glory of God fills the earth, that as we caretake the spaces and places that God has placed us in, that his nature is seen through us, his tender care, his creativity his life and vitality, his order and shalom. But then, as now, Adam and Eve, mankind, rejects God's authority, the boundary lines that he draws around what's good and what's not, and we redefine good on our own terms. And we see the pattern of blaming others, of finger-pointing. Adam blaming Eve and God himself, Eve blaming the serpent, and we see that today. It doesn't take long to scan the headlines, and it is rare to see the person stand up and point the finger at themselves and say, the problem is with me. Reminds me of a story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or not. I've tried to look it up and fact check it and I can't find it. So if someone out there does have a source to verify this story, let us know. But there's a a story I heard once of G.K. Chesterton around the time of the outbreak of World War I. And apparently there was an editorial in one of the London newspapers. And one of the editors was pontificating in this editorial uh, about the state of society with the outbreak of World War I. You know, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with society? G.K. Chesterton apparently wrote in response to that editorial an opinion. And he said, in response to so-and-so's column on such and such date, I have only two words in response to their question, what's wrong with the world? I am. I am. Just those two words, not a further explanation. I am the problem. And of course, Chesterton wasn't single-handedly responsible for the outbreak of World War I, but he was making a point that until we stop finger-pointing and start taking ownership for our part to play in the brokenness of the world, then we're stuck. We don't move forward. So where's the hope? Where's the hope in light of the midterms and regardless of which side of the aisle you fall on and whether your man or your woman won or lost and regardless of who has control of the Senate and the House and regardless of what happens in 2024 and so on, where's the hope? The hope is with the follower of Jesus taking responsibility for the caretaking of their garden, to tend their garden, to take responsibility for the ways that we have rejected God's authority. Well, what does that look like? What does it mean to tend our garden? I think of it in terms of those three relationships, our relationship with God, our relationships with those with whom we are actually connected, not necessarily virtual relationships through social media, but friends and family members and roommates and extended family members and coworkers. It's tending the physical spaces where we live and work and play and the relationships within them, again, by extension, co-workers and our civic involvement and so on. I think there's a temptation in our hyper-connected world, Os Guinness calls this giantism, where instead of making the world smaller through our interconnectivity, through globalization, it's actually made the world a much bigger place, that I'm connected to every issue on the planet in real time, and it can become overwhelming. 
And I'm more and more convinced that one of the keys to human flourishing is to tend our garden and not someone else's garden. Now, I think it's incumbent upon believers to stay up to date to an extent, at least insofar as it means we can contribute to the conversation. But generally speaking, I am not going to have a considerable influence on what happens in Shanghai, China today, or Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, or Bandar Seri Begawan, Brunei. These are simply not places that God has given me to steward as part of my garden. But here in Waco, within my own family, within my circle of friends, our life group, within my job, even the extent, the reach of these podcasts and the various ministries that I'm a part of, these are the spaces that I tend to with care and concern and consideration. And if we would all take care to tend our garden, those places, spaces, and relationships that God has given us, I think we can move the ball down the field. And it's not just the relationships. There's an interesting pattern in Genesis chapter 1 that I first heard Marty Solomon talk about. You see this chiasm where the first three days God creates these spaces, and then the second set of three days he correspondingly fills those spaces. So day one corresponds to day four, and day two to day five, and day three to day six, where day one he creates the heavens and the earth, and day four he populates the heavens with the sun, moon, and stars. Day two he creates the skies and the seas, and day five he creates the birds and the fish. In day three, he creates the dry land. In day six, he populates it with the beasts of the earth and with humans. And I, I think similarly, we have these three relationships with God, with man, and with the earth encased in physical spaces. Our relationship with God happens in our physical bodies. Our relationships with others happen in our homes and, by extension, other homes and physical spaces. And then our relationship with the world, so to speak, through our work happens in our offices or in nature or in our vehicles. And I can see how some remnants of Gnosticism remain in the Protestant Western Church, where we don't talk a lot about those physical spaces frequently, at least the circles that I operate in. And I think there's a lot to say in the scriptures about the care of our physical bodies, about the care of our physical spaces, our homes, the order, the beauty, the financial integrity, and then our care of the physical earth again, through our vocations, through our hobbies, where we live, work, and play. So what's the problem with society? I think it begins with us, the finger pointed inward, taking responsibility for the ways that we have rejected God's authority and contributed to the fragmentation of our relationship with God, the fragmenting of human relationships, the fragmenting of our caretaking of the physical earth. But simultaneously, where's the hope? It's in believers taking responsibility, those places and spaces that we have been given to steward and to caretake and to bring about maximum beauty and fruitfulness. Because at the end of the day, one of the consistent themes in this podcast is ultimately we are all in some ways syncretistic. We are all co-opted by the various narratives that we have grown up under and that we're influenced by in broader society. In the West, again, we would propose those two main belief systems, the Judeo-Christian tradition and then the secular belief system. And we've done a lot to compare and contrast those. And most of Western Christianity, or I should say most of American Christianity, is likely some blend of those two very pervasive worldviews. I saw a slide recently that described moralistic therapeutic deism, and I thought that was a pretty succinct mashup of Christianity and secularism. And it goes something like this, the five points of moralistic therapeutic deism. 
that God does exist and he created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. And God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to solve a problem. And good people go to heaven when they die. And I think while that's overgeneralized, that's a fairly accurate assessment of the general state of belief among the church in the West. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism because moralistic, we should be good moral people. Therapeutic, the goal of religion is to provide therapeutic benefits to its adherents. There's little to no expectation of submission of the will to God, and there does not exist a robust theology of pain. And deism, God does exist and created the world, but is generally unengaged in daily life until called upon to act to our benefit. And so this episode is a call to all believers to a more holistic discipleship to Jesus Christ, to ensure that our minds are being renewed by the truth, the narrative of scripture, to be practicing the ways of Jesus. If John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, it is the way of Jesus, the practices of the Messiah. It is the truth that Jesus espouses and embodies, and his practices and his truth lead to his life, the telos, the life of Christ flowing in us and through us. It is to take responsibility for our own sin and shortcomings, to point the finger inward and to take ownership. And it is to evaluate where we've been compromised by other narratives, by other practices, where our lives look less like our Messiah and more like the culture and the world around us. This, I believe, encapsulates both the problem and the hope for America. Does it mean to not get engaged in politics? Of course not. But I think it means that that is secondary or tertiary to these other considerations. It also doesn't mean to not be involved in school boards and to have meaningful dialogue around all the issues that plague us. But I do believe those are the fruits and the flowers at the end of a root system and the trunk and the branches that is rooted in the ways of Jesus and a life that is in alignment with the life of Jesus. So no, this is a little different from our usual episodes, though this draws on many of the themes, but felt it was merited just looking around at what's happening in the West, happening in America, happening among believers in the church. And may we, may we align with the person of Jesus, take responsibility, tend our garden. And as a result, may we see the glory of God manifested in the earth in our day. Thanks, as always, for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Ideology.